The following presentation is brought to you by the Creedle Podcast Network. To learn more or to support our efforts, head to patreon.com slash creedle. That's patreon.com slash C-R-E-E-D-A-L. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Real Life, a podcast about making movies. Over these next episodes, we are following closely the production of a short film called Double Bondsman. Through interviews with the director, cast members, and production team, I'm bringing you onto the ground floor of filmmaking. This is episode eight, Death by a Thousand Cuts. It's really thrilling. Like the thing that I love about editing, I, I used the analogy of the puzzle earlier. And it's really thrilling to get into the edit and to start to see the pieces fit together, um, sometimes in the way that you imagine that they would fit together. But it's also really thrilling when um, things that you were, you thought one thing on set, and then when you get it into the edit, you see, you see it a different way. I am reasonably confident that Chandler is the only person whom I have ever heard describe editing as a thrilling process. But I'm happy for him because it is also a thankless process. It's one that you might call death by a thousand cuts. You have a thousand cuts, or in some cases, even more than that, and you have to figure out how all of those cuts will go together, or not necessarily all of them, because you really have to sift through them and figure out which ones you're going to use and which ones you're not going to use. You're going to have to think about color and sound, and score, lighting, all sorts of things that you don't think about when you're just sitting back and enjoying a film. But I guarantee you, the editor thinks about all of those things over and over and over again. In this episode, we're going to talk about what that process is like. And although the process itself might sometimes be tedious, this episode's not. It's actually really interesting, and we dive deep with Chandler on a lot of the aspects of editing, and I show you a lot of the, the audio directly from the film in which you can understand what Chandler's talking about. We talk about the score, the music, dialogue, how to select between various cuts, uh, missed opportunities, and more. So I think you'll enjoy this episode. I also want to mention that the film is going to be released very soon. And if you want to watch it with me, I encourage you to do so. Uh, June 23rd at 9 p.m. Eastern time, Chandler and I are going to be on YouTube doing a live Q&A alongside the world premiere of Double Bondsman. So look for the link in the show notes. I am so excited about this, and I hope that you are too. You've been following along this journey for the past six or seven weeks now with real life, and I really want you to see the finished product, Double Bondsman. So look for the link in the show notes. Again, YouTube live Q&A plus the global premiere of Double Bondsman on June 23rd at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Without further ado death by a thousand cuts. Okay, Chandler, so you've been doing a lot of editing, a lot of post-production on the project so far. Sure have. I use the word editing, but really what I'm talking about is post-production. So talk to me just a little bit, like what all is involved in post-production? Once you do all the shooting, you finish all the work on the set itself. You come back with a bunch of raw files, a bunch of various takes. 
bunch of sound files. What all is involved in putting that together to make it into the final product that is Double Bondsman? Well, when it comes to post-production on a project like this, um, there are kind of three main phases of uh, the post-production process, or at least um, uh, three major kind of sections. The first one is uh, prepping. Um, and so that involves just organizing uh, and really, you know, laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for a good edit. Um, you know, as you know, so if, if you're like a contractor and you've got your truck, you want your truck to be organized so that in the moment when you're like in the middle of a job and you need a hammer, you know where the hammer is and you can grab it quickly and you don't have to waste all this time digging through your truck or dig, digging through your bag, whatever, to find the hammer, you know where it is. The same concept goes for editing. So even though it's kind of uh, boring, like sifting through and organizing and like labeling and kind of adding markers and all that and doing all these organizational things, it's not the, like conventionally speaking, it's not the fun part of editing, but it's uh, actually kind of a rewarding thing to do because once you get everything organized now when you need that one clip, you know, when you need that hammer, you've got it, you can go reach for it. Um, and, uh, and that uh, is extremely helpful. And then also along with that first stage, it's watching every second of footage. Um, the goal is when I'm editing a project, I want to have in my mind, in my memory, every moment that was captured. Um, and the more familiarity I can have with just the raw material, um, the more creativity I will be able to have later in the edit when we hit a problem. Because now I know what tools I have access to and what moments I have. And then I can more easily and more quickly try things out and, uh, and, and see it, you know, in, in real time, if this idea is actually going to work. Um, so that first stage of organizing is, is really helpful, um, and really crucial for setting yourself up for success. Then the second stage is actually getting it all in a timeline and actually doing, you know, kind of the, what, what you would normally think of as editing, um, trimming clips, bringing everything in, um, and starting to, to, actually make cuts from one shot to the next shot. Um, and you know, that process, uh, takes up probably, um, kind of the bulk of, uh, the creative decisions it takes up probably the bulk of the time. Uh, and then, um, the third stage is where, uh, you might be sending off individual shots for visual effects work, um, as well as bringing, uh, the, you know, all the kind of sound design and sound mix, uh, into, uh, the edit and then doing final color correction. Um, so I don't know if that's how everyone would kind of break things down, but roughly speaking in my mind, those are the three main stages. You have organizing, you have the actual like editing, making the cuts, and then you have all of the polish that is necessary, um, to really make the scene sparkle. Cause in, in an edit, you know, in just the raw edit, you might have shots that have green screens. You might have shots, um, that you have to use your imagination in order to, to get, Oh, okay. This is where that kind of sound is going to be. This is where that music cue is going to be. 
Um, and then that third stage is really where uh, you're able to um, stop having to ask people to imagine and they can actually just hear it and evaluate it and see it. What struck me about what you just said is that you had to watch every single bit of footage. Now, when I was on set, it seemed like every every scene was shot at least 10 times and on the upper end, probably closer to 30 times. So we're talking about a 15 minute film with every scene having been shot that many times. So you're really watching 15 minutes of footage times on the lower end, 10 to the upper end, 30. That's that's a lot of hours of footage to <laughs> sit there and sift through. Um, we probably have somewhere in the ballpark of 20 hours of, of raw material for a 15 okay. minute movie. So 80 times what the uh, 80 times what the movie ends up being. Yeah, which is actually on the lower end. Um, it's pretty common for um, like a Hollywood feature film will often do 200 to one. Um, and so if we're like 80 to one, that's uh, fairly efficient. That's not bad. Um, that's not to say that, you know, it's, it's not, not necessarily something to celebrate of like, oh yeah, we only shot 80 to one, but um, but what it does mean is that, you know, we were efficient with our time cause it was limited for sure. Give me an idea of what your software setup is like. What kind of tools do you use to do the editing itself? In this film, I decided to make a very controversial decision and do the entire thing inside of DaVinci Resolve. Um, n uh, most of the people I work with, um, typically prefer, uh, Adobe Premiere. And I use Premiere pretty much every day. Um, I use it all the time on a bunch of different stuff. Um, but I've really, uh, been excited about, uh, resolve and they've really improved their editing software. And they also have, um, the, some of the industry's best color grading features. Um, and I also just, uh, I, you know, I just kind of like the resolve interface for editing as well. So, um, I kind of took it as a fun challenge to dive into, um, this software that I've been using for years, but really kind of try to master it. You mentioned that that was a controversial decision, and I know that you've been partnering with Distant Moon on a lot of the post-production work involved with Double Bondsman, and we played a little bit of the conversation in which you and Ian sort of hashed out some of the details of that. So how has that partnership been in the post-production? What's what's the workflow been like there? Have you done some of your own work, shipped it off to them back and forth, and how are you swapping you know, hundreds of gigabytes of footage? And then how has the, uh, how has the software preference on their part for Premiere, assuming that they are among the majority who like Premiere and on your part for DaVinci, how has that, uh, that played out? Yeah, well, this is where workflow is really a matter of planning. Um, like post-production starts in pre-production. That's a general principle um, that uh, should be applied to every project. When we shot the film, uh, I uh, did all the offloading myself and I offloaded um, all the footage onto three different hard drives. I took two of them back to Michigan and I left one of them with Distant Moon. Um, and I made sure that the file structures were all identical. So what that meant is that um, all we would need to do is uh, email back and forth the actual project file and all of the footage uh, would basically just be able to sync up and you wouldn't have any issues. To put what Chandler is talking about into layman's terms, before he gave Distant Moon the copy of the hard drive with all the raw footage on it, and remember this is about 80 hours of raw footage, so this is terabytes of data, or at least hundreds of gigabytes of data, he made sure that every file on the one hard drive 
mirror the other file on the second hard drive, even in name. That way, when Chandler has his DaVinci Resolve workflow up and he says, hey, I want to insert clip 1A into this spot, and then I want to follow it with clip 2C in this spot, when he sends that project file to Distant Moon, which has all of those same markers, and they plug that into their computer with their hard drive, their copy of the hard drive, all of those things will fall into place and the project file will refer to the exact same files on the mirror images of the hard drive itself, if that makes sense. So it's a pretty savvy way of sharing data without actually having to send hundreds of gigabytes back and forth each way. Um, and that worked pretty well, I think. Uh, I can't you know, totally speak for, uh, for them, but I know that um, they do typically do most of their work in Adobe Premiere. Um, but Ian said he was, <laughs> he, he said that, oh yeah, we'll, we'll give it a shot. We'll give it a shot. We've, they'd been wanting to look into editing and resolve anyway. And so this, he said, would give them a chance to try it out. Um, but once we, once I actually sent them the resolve project, um, there was a little bit, I think of like, oh shoot, what did we get ourselves into? This is a totally different software that we're not familiar with. Um, but I think, you know, after a couple days of, um, kind of emailing back and forth about whether or not we should shift the project to premiere, they, um, just wound up working in resolve and, uh, it seems like they figured it out and, and did fine. Um, but basically what, how the project went is, um, I, I did all of, uh, more or less all of stage one. So I did all the organization syncing and just kind of watching everything myself. And then I, uh, did a first kind of very rough pass at the film. Um, and then I sent it to distant moon and they, um, basically took it from there, cut out, um, probably, I think three ish minutes of the film. I think the first cut I sent them was about 15 and a half minutes. And I think they got it down to about 12 and a half. Um, and, uh, then they sent it back and we, uh, discussed it, um, in person, they, uh, were in town, uh, for another project. And so I was able to hang out with them and, and we talked about it. And, uh, then I took, um, another pass at it where, um, I, you know, I, I basically tried to take all of the moments that they, uh, that we had talked about or that, um, they had removed and try to evaluate, um, okay, why was that not working? What, um, what could be done differently? Uh, you know, and, and just, um, you know, bounce ideas off of Lara or off of Josh or, um, or others and just kind of get a sense of, okay, maybe this is, um, a different approach to this scene. Uh, or, you know, there were a lot of helpful notes of like, well, you know, this, this moment of the performance, uh, didn't, wasn't working, um, for distant moon. And they, they, you know, they didn't like that performance beat. They didn't like that moment. And so that was really helpful, you know, to have another opinion. And so there are multiple instances where I pulled in a different take or, um, you know, uh, or, or, shortened a scene or something like that. So, uh, it was very helpful to have kind of, um, them take the middle leg of the journey. Um, and, uh, that let me, you know, take a break from it for a little bit, but also just get a different opinion. 
Um, and then now they are taking it for the fourth leg of the journey. Um, they are taking it for all of the kind of finalizing of the uh, sound mix and the color grade. Um, so they are working on that as we speak right now. Um, and in about a week, um, they will be done with all that um, and send it back to me. One other thing I wanted to ask you, Chandler, was about the the color in the film. Now, I know that in the pre-production process, you put together a mood deck in which you tried to convey what you wanted the film to look like from a visual standpoint and just sort of the, the mood that you wanted its viewers to come away with. And you had some snippets from other Hollywood films and other pictures to go in this mood deck and to convey a sense of what Double Bondsman would ultimately look like when it all was said and done. Um, but I know there's a lot involved in in, I don't know if the term is colorizing, if that's a, you know, gerund verb, but uh, in that process of getting to that. So, and you mentioned that DaVinci Resolve, your software is really good at doing that. Um, what was that like? I mean, how do you, do you have to have special monitor equipment to do color grading? Um, or, or what sort of, what sort of element of difficulty did that add to the editing for Double Bondsman? Well, so that's, that hasn't been done yet. <laughs> um, so that's currently what um, Distant Moon is working on. Um, I will say that uh, at the more I've, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole with color grading, um, the more um, nitpicky I've been about um, my own setup for color grading. Um, but I mean, basically, yeah, the goal of, of color grading is to uh, um, take the kind of raw material that the cinematographer uh, captured and, you know, agonized over, um, and, and take that, um, from kind of like the potentiality that it has, um, the potential energy, so to speak of a shot, the potential color of a shot and bring it to life in a way that, um, helps to establish the tone of the scene, um, in a way that best suits the story. So that's the goal of color grading. Um, with this film, you know, we shot a lot of it at night. And so most of the film is going to be kind of dark. It's going to have, we, you know, we intentionally leaned into on, on the day, um, different, uh, color temperatures. You know, we had a lot of warm lights contrasted with, uh, like cyan, um, was a color we used quite frequently. There's a few moments when they go into the apartment, um, where there's, uh, kind of glowing red lights, um, in the, near the door. Um, and so, uh, lots of things like that, that kind of has this, a little bit of kind of like a neon, uh, nighttime, um, kind of amber and cyan glow about it. Um, and so in the opening scene, for example, Ian just stuck, um, it's called the DS one type of light fixture, um, in the background, it just turned it to cyan and it's just there in the background, kind of like as a, as just a light element, adding some texture and a little bit of cyan backlight to the twins. So things like that are what the color grade is going to really bring out and make those colors pop. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, give kind of some style to it. Um, but also, you know, you want your, your colors to, uh, you know, be somewhat balanced. And that's why we, you know, orange and cyan have balance. Um, and so, uh, those kinds of things are going to be what the, the color grade is going to bring out. Now, this is a hypothetical question or, or maybe not, but, uh, you know, what do you do if you're 
doing the editing and then you come across a scene and you just think, we should have shot this differently. I wish I had better footage to work with. This is not how I want to edit it. You realize that something is missing. Something does not quite cohere with your vision as you saw this scene playing out. What do you do in that instance? Well, uh, absolutely. We, (laughs) uh, ran into that. Um, that happens on, on most projects. Um, not that, uh, you know, we, you know, it's not with every scene. Um, but yeah, it's, it's often the case, um, when you're in an edit where you have the clarity of hindsight and you know, oh, okay, this is, you know, in my imagination right now, as I'm thinking about putting together this scene, I wish that we could cut to this type of shot. Um, and that definitely, you know, happens frequently in an edit, but, um, that doesn't even necessarily speak to the quality of the footage that was captured or the quantity of it. Um, because there have been projects where you have, you know, tons and tons of footage, even more than we had on this one. Um, and sometimes you still run into that moment where you think, oh man, uh, I wish that we had this shot. Um, and so that's not uncommon and I wouldn't even describe it necessarily as, as a bad thing or a problem. Um, because one of the beautiful things about editing, in my opinion, is I always like to describe it a little bit like a puzzle. Um, you have a set number of pieces, um, you have, uh, you know, with some rare exceptions, you can't really go back and redo things, um, you know, unless your budget really allows for it. But with most films, um, that's not how things work. Um, and so, uh, it's constraint, you know? So now you have to figure out, okay, what, given the puzzle pieces that I have, how can I fit things together? Um, and oftentimes, um, what that allows you to do is you can, you have to think about the footage in multiple different ways. So they're puzzle pieces, but they are puzzle pieces that fit together in maybe like 20 different ways. (laughs) And so, uh, the exciting thing about the editing process is finding that one shot that you thought would mean one thing, or when it was captured, it meant one thing. And uh, now in the edit, you're able to use it in a different way. Um, I find that exciting as an editor. Um, and so, uh, I don't mind, you know, that, that predicament. I'm never like, oh man, this whole scene is ruined. Cause we didn't get that one shot. Uh, that's not really like when I'm, when I'm in, in the edit, that's not really, um, my thought process. Um, and if I'm editing a project that I didn't direct, that's not, even necessarily my place, you know? And I mean, unless it's a project that does have still uh, shoot days left, but anyway, all that is to say, um, yes, we did have moments like that on double bondsman in the edit. Um, one of them, you know, uh, was just, uh, that there's a scene in a stairwell. Um, and we had a few minutes to get that scene because it was late and, Uh, the other residents of the apartment complex that we were shooting in were, uh, complaining that we were being loud. Um, and so we, uh, had to just get the scene and get it quickly. And so we just did it in one shot and I'm wishing that we had it in multiple shots. I'm wishing that we had just, um, even just a a shot reverse shot to work with, but we had one shot. Um, and so that scene is 
just that one shot locked off on a tripod and that's, that's what we got, you know, and that's fine. And we can work with that. Um, but I, you know, in that moment, I would have loved to have just a little bit more, um, to, you know, adjust. You said shot reverse shot. Can you explain that terminology to me? I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, so shot reverse shot is the bread and butter of film editing. Um, so you have a shot of say, um, Brett, and then he is talking to Rhett and so they're facing each other. So you have a shot of Brett, um, and then you have reverse shot, which is just basically the same shot composition, but mirrored. Um, and it's of the other person in this case, Rhett, uh, looking at Brett and they're talking to one another. And so by cutting from shot to reverse, um, it gives the impression through the edit that they are speaking with each other and looking at each other, even though you don't necessarily see either of them together in the same shot. Got it. Okay. Um, the other big moment when I wish we had shot things differently was, uh, in, during the interrogation room sequence, there's a scene where the police officer steps out and goes into, uh, the viewing room. Um, and there's this gag that we all love and it's pretty funny, uh, where, um, you know, there, uh, the detective is talking to another cop and in the background you see, um, Brett trying to escape through a ceiling vent and he's like climbing on the ceiling, climbing on the table and kind of like jumping around. Um, and so it's a visual gag, uh, but, um, the dialogue in the scene that I wrote originally didn't work for how we needed to shoot the scene. So we were kind of rewriting that moment on the fly. And, uh, what we came up with was not great <laughs> to be honest. Um, and so, um, the dialogue just wasn't working in the edit at all. Um, and so we wound up, um, it was one of those moments where, you know, through constraint, okay, this is the, these are the puzzle pieces we have to work with. Um, now, you know, uh, I was able to find a solution where we were able to cut out most of the dialogue that wasn't working and just kind of hit the moments that were working. And that improved the scene a lot. Um, but I do wish in that moment, you know, in that scene in particular that we had just a couple of, uh, other, um, you know, angles and a couple of other options, um, that would have made that scene a little bit better and a little bit easier to, uh, to edit. Well, speaking of that scene, can we go through it a little bit and you can show me kind of what you're talking about or some, maybe just some various cuts from it and walk me through the editing process. How did you edit that scene in particular? Let's do it. I have DaVinci Resolve opened in front of me. And let me just describe for you what an editing timeline looks like if you're not familiar with it. Um, so there are basically a bunch of like blue and green and pink and orange squares all over the place. And each little square represents a shot um, or a sound effect or a line of dialogue. And I'm currently looking at the timeline for Devil Bondsman, and there are uh, hundreds of these little squares and rectangles all over the place um, because, uh, you know, for any given moment, you know, there's going to be a cut every few seconds, you know, every four or five seconds maybe. And then within that, there's going to be for every scene, you know, potentially hundreds of sound effects. Um, and so it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of information to manage. Um, 
And uh, again, that's, uh, I mentioned earlier, that's where the organization bit comes in. What do you want me to do next? Do you want me to show you some, some different takes? Yeah, yeah. Show me maybe some, some like multiple takes of the same scene and, uh, you know, just run through them as if you're editing them and kind of uh, think, you know, talk us through what's going through your mind and what you're looking for and hearing. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Let me pull that up. All right, so this is um, a take from the interrogation room scene uh, towards the end of the film. And I'm going to play a couple different um, versions of Maggie's performance here because she, um, we tried a bunch of different stuff, honestly, and it kind of experimented. Um, and uh, so you'll definitely be able to hear the difference between one take and the next. And then I'll talk about the discussion that we had in the post-production process of why we ultimately chose what we did. So uh, here's option number one. It was a suicide. What? The note was on the dresser. He called DoorDash before he offed himself so someone would find the body. But the blood splatter. What did you think would happen? If there was a killer and you tracked him down? Get a confession? What? Turn him in for a handsome reward right off into the sunset? I've seen more murders. I've seen more suicides than I have murders, and I'm a homicide detective. So we're no longer suspects? No. But you still resisted arrest. Your brother assaulted a police officer, and we found six ounces of weed in your glove compartment. Your trial's in two weeks. Uh, wait, what about our mom? Did she come down? So there, um, she's much more matter-of-fact. Um, and if you, you'll see in this next take... Maggie flying off the handle, and it's very fun. The note was on the dresser. He called DoorDash before he offed himself so someone would find the body. But the blood splatter. You are such a fucking little know-it-all punk. What did you think would happen if there was a killer? That you were gonna track him down, get a confession, ride off into the sunset? <laughs> I've seen more suicides than I have murders, and I'm a fucking homicide detective. It was a suicide. What? The note was on the dresser. He called DoorDash before he offed himself so someone would find the body. But the blood splatter. Okay, I'm about as impressed with your knowledge as I am with your fake leather. All right, you're a little fucking know-it-all punk. What did you think was going to happen if there was a killer and you tracked him down? Got a confession. Turn him in for a handsome reward right off into the sunset? I've seen more suicides than I have murders, and I'm a fucking homicide detective. So we're no longer suspects? No. Well, but you still resisted arrest. Your brother assaulted a police officer, and we found the six ounces of weed in your glove box. Your trial's in two weeks. Wait, what about our mom? Did she come down? So those are three different takes. Um, take number one has, you know, it's much more matter of fact. Uh, it's it's uh, a little tired, I would say. Um, and take number two and three. Take number two is like just straight up angry. And take number three is a little bit more annoyed. Um, and... I had actually been pulling from all three 
for my initial kind of first pass. Um, because the arc of the scene, what I wanted, um, was, you know, I, I, I liked, um, kind of the, the, um, the things that Maggie had done in the moment to improv, which was, uh, you know, she threw some extra kind of insults in there and she just, uh, you know, she does a great job angry. <laughs> um, and I enjoyed that. Um, and I, I kind of enjoyed just watching her perform on the day. And I was, I was very, uh, just kind of surprised and also kind of thrilled to see her try out all these different things. Um, and so in the edit, I was pulling from, uh, multiple different takes um, you know, probably from, I think from all three of those takes that you just listened to. Um, and when I sent it to distant moon, um, they, uh, disagreed and they actually cut out, um, several of the lines in, in that scene. Um, and when I asked them about it, um, they kind of struggled to articulate it for a second, but then Jesse said something that was extremely helpful and extremely insightful. And it was just like, she, he said that um, the arc of the scene um, didn't feel like it deserved that level of vitriol. Here's an excerpt of the conversation that Chandler is talking about in which he sat down with Ian and Jesse and Josh Liebhauser was there as well. I think they're in a bar in Michigan, uh, so it's a little bit noisy, but you can still hear what Ian and Jesse are saying. And Ian outlines his sort of theory of short film editing that he's learned from others. And then Jesse explains more about this scene and why he made the edit that he did. One kind of the maxim that I've heard from several like filmmakers who are further along than I am that I respect yeah. is that if you have a short film and you're watching a scene or a part of a scene and you can't say, oh, this line or this thing helps push the narrative forward, no matter how much you like it, it needs to go. Okay. Um, so that was number one. And then number two was edit to make every line or action feel like the simplest, most fundamental response or, or act that would be done in real life in the context of that world. Yeah, sure. You know? My sense was um, that, like, her vitriol kind of got too high and too much um, in a way that didn't, I didn't feel like it um, was justified almost. It's like, why is she so personally pissed off about this? Yeah, like, why is she so mad at him? Yeah, right. Um, Especially because, like, in the the adjacent room, she's like, oh, he's a nobody. I don't really care. Is, like, the tone. Which could be the counter argument, right? Like, oh, well, she's just messing with him. Sure. But... I didn't get the sense enough that she was actually messing with him. It cool. kind of started cool. feeling like, oh, she's really just pissed. And she's going to have to do paperwork. And, yep. and so it was like a lot of vitriol. And I think it was like 40 seconds or something. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing it around there. Mm-hmm. Um, that I thought would be kind of do away with. Absolutely. And um, kind of with cutting that out, I think it also allows us to cut into it the way we did, where it basically cues in the audience that the whole time he's been telling the story to her yep. and now we know that and we know where we are and it's all kind of been in his imagination yeah. you know yep. Yep. to my yeah to Jesse's point uh, was that 
in the arc of the scene where we want it to land is at the end of the scene. Um, she expresses a little bit of sympathy for him. Um, she expresses this little bit of, you know, he asks, he, um, what about her mom? Did she come down? And she replies, you might want to call someone else. And there's a little bit in her performance that shows a little bit of sympathy, a little bit of concern for him. Um, just a tiny, tiny bit of that. Um, but Jesse's point was that if that's where the scene needs to land, then she can't be so angry. You know, she can't be that upset with him just, you know, 20 seconds earlier. Um, and so we need to keep her a little bit more restrained, a little bit more on the uh, kind of like a little more concerned, uh, sorry, not concerned, a little more tired rather than annoyed and frustrated. Um, not that she's not kind of annoyed. She thinks he's stupid. Um, but the point of the scene um, is she's trying to kind of, she's his reality check, you know, like she's bringing him down to earth. Um, and so rather than giving him, uh, giving him the works, you know, rather than kind of unloading all the barrels um, and just yelling at him, um, we thought it would be more potent um, if she's a little more uh, cold and a little more distant um, as opposed to hot and, and tempered, you know? That totally makes sense. And it is, you know, having seen what's close to the final cut, it is emotionally powerful when she says you might want to call someone else. And I agree with Jesse's point about sort of how the scene needs to build to that moment because it's it's kind of a sad, it's a sad scene. And you realize what the, the, the predicament that Brett finds himself in and you want to build to that moment appropriately within the scene itself. Yeah, so that was, that was a moment where um, I think me as a director probably got in the way of me as an editor um, because on the day I had been so excited to see that side of Maggie's performance um, and in the edit I kind of wanted to see that played out um, but Jesse and Ian had to kind of bring me down a little bit and say no 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 for the scene this this take actually works better. One thing we haven't really talked about at all I don't think is the music for this work. I know that you have worked with a composer to do an original score. So how is that process work integrating the score with all of the various scenes? So the composer's name is Ryan Moore. Um, and uh, you can look him up on SoundCloud, Ryan Moore. Uh, but he, uh, I've worked with him on another project. This is, yeah, my second project with him. Um, and the reason that I have gone back to him a second time. And the reason why I plan to go back to him, um, in the future is because working with Ryan is a really easy, fun, collaborative process. And he just has the best attitude about everything. And so, um, you know, with something, uh, like a score where you're, it's iterative, you are, uh, talking through it frequently. Um, and, uh, you know, there are multiple different versions, and so it requires a imagination on you know everyone involved, uh, but b it also requires uh, you know a lot of kind of humility for for me. It requires humility for him, um, and so it's been really really great working with him, um, just so that we you know the ideas can flow and uh, we can kind of uh, try to as much as possible set aside kind of our own. Um, 
egos, our own, you know, ideas of what, uh, should happen. And we can just kind of come to it and, and bounce ideas off each other. Um, so anyway, it's been really great working with him and, uh, basically a lot of our inspiration, uh, kind of the baseline ideas of where we wanted to go with this movie is that we wanted to combine, um, the, some of the kind of noir elements of, uh, some classic kind of noir movies. We wanted to give it kind of a little bit of this nighttime kind of, uh, intrigue, uh, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's got this, uh, narration, this monologue that's very reminiscent of, uh, you know, something, um, like double indemnity, um, classic noir film. Um, but then also there, you know, there's these elements of the film that are very kind of like montage fast paced in your face, uh, very fun, humorous. And for those elements, we were talking more about, um, hot fuzz was kind of a, a big recurring, uh, point of conversation. And there's this fast montage at the beginning of hot fuzz that, um, we used as kind of a jumping off point for our conversation about the montage at the beginning of double bondsman. And then there are other parts of the film where there's, uh, you know, when they discover the body and, uh, you know, it's a little creepier for a few minutes. Um, and that moment in particular, that cue we were talking about, uh, Zodiac, you know, the David Fincher movie. So we pulled from a lot of different, um, uh, reference points, you know, I was sending him like classic rock, uh, you know, a playlist for, you know, here's some songs that I listened to while I was writing the movie. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked, um, a lot about all those other movies, uh, and many more that, that I mentioned. Can you show us a few of the different styles of music that you've showcased in the film? Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and, and jump in. Um, here's just kind of the beginning. Uh, you'll hear a little bit of that kind of noir element that um, I mentioned earlier in the score um, in the track here. I am not a criminal. I know you guys might think differently, but if you were in my shoes, I guarantee that you would have done the same. Because we're both after justice here. There's that muted trumpet in the background. The whole thing started when we were waiting on a job, and Rhett turned to me it's and said, It's a very said, classic noir you think thing. Mom hates me? What, because of today? I just can't stop thinking that she's like mildly disgusted by me. Um, but then other parts like here. All right, I might have gotten ahead of myself. A few things you should know about us. First of all, we're identical twins. And in case you forget, Rhett's the one with the hair. But just because we're- So anyway, there's, there's kind of like that more uh, rock element that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then here's kind of more of that um, uh, Zodiac element that gives you a little bit of that um, kind of more uh, unsettling tone. Shot was fired from above. Bang. Just like that. I think what we're looking at here is a murder that was made to look like a suicide. What? This is nuts, man. You've never even seen a real murder before. Sliding glass door is open. 
Yeah, the music is one of my favorite parts of the film. I think it's re really well done and you've integrated it well and made it sort of fit with the overall vision and mood of the film. So kudos to you. I wanted to ask you, Chandler, maybe you just share with us something about one of your favorite scenes from the film, maybe one that was extra challenging, but turned out and you're really proud of it, or just, I don't know, just share with me one of your one of your favorite parts of the film now being on the other side of the editing process with it. It's the scene where they get arrested. I mean, kind of spoiler alert, but um, I'm gonna talk about this scene because this scene is one of my favorite moments in the movie. And I was extremely concerned about this scene when we shot it um, because we had to, on the day, we had to kind of butcher a lot of my initial plan for the chase scene because it was too ambitious. Um, I did a bad job producing it. And so we didn't have the necessary locations to make the plan that I wanted to do work. And so, uh, the day that we were shooting it, you know, I was like walking around Percival <laughs> trying to piece together, okay, where are we going to shoot all these bits of the chase scene? Uh, we didn't have, uh, you know, permits from the police. Um, and so everything was going to be kind of under the radar. Um, and we had to do as much of it as possible, um, on distant moon property within, you know, a block of, um, the office that distant moon is not owning, but renting. Um, and there was this one scene in particular when they get arrested, they run around a corner, uh, they stop, they're out of breath, and then they see cop lights behind them and then they turn around. And I really wanted this turn in slow motion uh, where they now are looking, seeing the cops, and it's kind of this reality check where um, they're getting arrested and there's a voiceover that, that comes in that talks about um, this bind that they're in where now they have to kind of make a choice between do we get arrested um, for this murder that we didn't commit or do we run away and live as fugitives? That's, that's kind of the, the dichotomy that they have in their minds. Um, and uh, they, the, the twin brothers each make a different decision in that moment. Um, and so I wanted that to be in slow motion. I wanted it to be uh, kind of uh, an emotional uh, moment for the film. And I was drawing a lot of inspiration from Wes Anderson for this montage. Um, Wes Anderson loves these kind of slow motion moments in his films that he tends to kind of sprinkle in. Um, and there's oftentimes kind of a, um, some kind of either a pop song or like a folksy song or some kind of music beat that, um, is kind of like the character's inner soundtrack of what they think of themselves in that moment. And so I knew that I needed, I, I wanted to do something in that vein and kind of, uh, give, give an homage to Wes Anderson in, in that moment. Um, and so, uh, on the day of shooting, I was incredibly nervous. Um, I was very concerned that the scene would not work. I knew that the scene had to work in order for the film to work on an emotional level. The stakes were very high and my confidence was very low, um, to be frank. And when we were shooting it, um, I was not sure if we'd be able to pull it off. Um, there were challenges on the day where uh, we needed a cop car that would look convincing. And 
all we had was my 2015 black Honda fit <laughs> and Ian had the brilliant idea of taking, um, uh, like whiskey glasses and setting them upside down on the roof of the car and shooting red and blue lights through them. And they look in the background, just like cop lights on the top of a, a cop car. Um, and so the production design wound up working out just fine. And the cinematography wound up working out just fine. And that was the first thing I edited because when I got back to Michigan, when I started looking at the footage, I was very nervous about this scene. And I thought this scene could collapse. And if it collapses, I don't know what to do with the rest of the movie. Um, so I put it together and I found a song online that I heard and I immediately knew this is going to be the song. Um, so I'll play for you, um, the scene and you'll kind of, you know, you won't be able to see it obviously, but you'll kind of hear the song and hear the beats, um, and hear the voiceover, um, that I'm talking about. We found ourselves in a bind. We could either get arrested for a murder we didn't commit, or we could escape and live as fugitives. I thought we would take the noble way out, but... Rhett did the other thing. After all, he was packing. There I was, for the first time in my life, alone. And you two wanted to become bondsmen? That was the dream. Anyway, all I can say is it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And so just in the process of editing and putting it together, it went from the scene I was most worried about to the scene I was most confident about. That's it for this episode of Real Life, Episode 8, Death by a Thousand Cuts. Thanks so much for following along this journey as we follow the production of Double Bondsman. I am so excited to see it through to the end as we do the world premiere of the short film on YouTube, June 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. The link is in your show notes. We're going to have Chandler on board for a live Q&A as well, so bring your questions. It'll be a great time. The world premiere of Double Bondsman, June 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks so much, as always, for listening to this episode of Real Life. For questions, comments, feedback, or concerns, send me an email, reallife at creedlepodcast.com. To learn more about the Creedle Podcast Network, head to creedlepodcast.com. See you soon. <laughs>